peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And today we'll be covering another one of Paul's more controversial passages. But I'm sure you've already gathered that. <laughs> now, we need to remember that what Paul has to say to women here is governed by its context. Just three chapters ago, Paul gave instructions to female prophets who were speaking in corporate worship. Now, maybe you think Paul is schizophrenic, but I, I don't, I don't. I think the Paul of chapter 14 is the same Paul as the Paul of chapter 11. When Paul tells women to be silent in chapter 14, he simply cannot be contradicted contradicting what he says in chapter 11. So what is Paul saying? Well, we're going to get to that, you know, if, if I have time. Um, but it's important that we begin in verse 26. So I'm going to leave us sitting in that tension for a little bit. Paul gets very practical here at the end of chapter 14. He has talked at length about the spiritual gifts. He has talked about the primacy of love. And now he's going to describe in very practical terms what it will look like for love to govern the exercise of these gifts in Corinth. When lovingly exercised, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will produce mutual edification, peace, and order. Thus, where there is tearing down strife or disorder in the church, we are out of step with the Holy Spirit, which is to say we are out of step with the way of love. So let's keep in mind, the Christians in Corinth were jockeying for position. They were following divergent teachings. They were ignoring the poor. They were actually suing one another. Everyone was talking at once. And people were actually getting drunk on communion wine. All right, so there is a context to Paul's instruction that we really struggle to visualize. But the Corinthians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. So if some of these verses seem like they're coming out of nowhere, that's primarily because this letter was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. Okay? This entire passage is about knowing when to speak and when to remain silent in corporate worship and always to act out of concern for the edification and strengthening of the body, the church. If Paul were to visit our Sunday gathering, he probably would not accuse us of being disorderly or ostentatious. But there are still plenty, thing, plenty of things for us to learn and apply from these, from these verses. Um, we'll be discussing prophecy and tongues again this week. I won't take time to define them because we've done so in previous sermons. Um, that's why. All right, let's read verses 26 to 28. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So Paul is giving instructions for people who speak in tongues. The goal is order and mutual edification. 
Thus, there should only be two or three people speaking in tongues, and they should take turns, and there should always be someone there to interpret what is said. Otherwise, they should be silent. They are not to inject confusion into the church by speaking unintelligible things. This instruction was countercultural. In, in pagan worship services at this time, worshipers would work themselves into ecstatic trances or frenzies. And this was a highly personal, individualized experience. And so Paul wanted to ensure that Christian worship in Corinth was comprehensible and temperate, aimed at building up everybody. So what does this mean for us? Well, in Corinth... Everybody had something to say. Everybody was coming into corporate worship with something for everybody else. And the result was chaos. And yet there is something of a rebuke here for us because often we come into corporate worship intending only to receive. We listen, we learn, and we leave. We don't always see this as an opportunity to contribute or to serve or to build up but there are so many ways to build up the body on Sunday mornings. Join one of our volunteer teams. Greet your neighbor with a smile. Say, peace be with you. Sing loudly and with energy. Pray the prayers. Read the scripture with, with joy and vigor. Arrive early, maybe, to meet people. Uh, take somebody to lunch. Silently pray for the people sitting around you. There are so many ways to build up the body on Sunday mornings. But again, our, our corporate worship is more ordered than worship in Corinth. But that doesn't mean we come empty-handed. We gather together looking to build one another up. And when everyone comes in with that mindset, we all leave strengthened and encouraged. That's how that works. On the other hand, anything that does not build up should not be done. When the exercise of a gift does not build up the church, we welcome division into the church via the very gift given for the binding up of the church. And that's a tragic misuse. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the giver of that gift. It's like a father giving to his son a toy and the, and, and the son fashioning that toy into a weapon to use against his brothers and sisters. And we do this. We do this when we use Bible knowledge to glorify ourselves to the discouragement of others. We do this when we speak true words in unhelpful ways or in unhelpful moments. We do this really anytime we elevate a gift of the Spirit above the fruit of the Spirit. Let's read verses 29 to 33a. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The word peace here is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom. 
The word is used to describe complex, multifaceted things that are held together in wholeness and harmony. And so within the church, it, it means that we are all working together despite our differences for the good of one another. So peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of an active love for one another. Our worship should bring an end to strife and foster shalom in our midst. And so Paul turns his attention to men and women and women exercising the gift of prophecy in corporate worship. And once again, two or three speakers was sufficient. The others were to weigh carefully what was said. Tongues should always be interpreted. Prophecy should always be judged or weighed. So what, what does it mean to judge prophecy? Well, it means we collectively need to know enough about the Bible to, one, uh, to, to distinguish between, one, God-given speech that coheres with Scripture and the situation at hand, and two, anything less than that. In addition, Paul advocated for a protocol of deference toward one another. If one person receives a revelation while another is speaking, the first speaker was to stop. The prophets were also instructed to wait their turn, and the goal was that every member of the church might be instructed and encouraged. Next, Paul anticipates the objection that prophets lose control of themselves under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, Prophets are perfectly able to exercise self-control when they prophesy. Even if your speech is genuinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can still control where, when, what, and for how long you speak. Our God is a God who speaks, and he speaks through us. But our God is not a God of disorder. Scripture reveals a God who acts coherently and decisively. And so for the Holy Spirit to produce disorder would be radically out of character. God does not inspire us to produce chaos in his church. In the words of James 3:17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere. A mature Christian will know how and when to deliver a powerful word so that it builds up everybody. Spontaneity is no guarantee of genuine spirituality. Spontaneity is no justification for careless or thoughtless speech. Prophets must be self-disciplined in their speech. Again, Paul wants to distinguish Christian worship from pagan worship. His pagan prophets would abandon themselves to possession. They would relinquish control completely. They would essentially empty their minds. And so Paul wants the Christians in Corinth to be self-controlled and thoughtful. He wants them to be in their right minds when they prophesy, totally lucid. Here's our takeaway. Paul pictures a church in which all the members wait together for the Holy Spirit to move. 
Each person is ready and willing to hear a word from God, and each person is learning to distinguish between truth and error. Sometimes God wants to speak to you through someone you disrespect or through someone, through someone who you think is wrong about something or through someone who has wronged you in some way or through someone in a different stage of life. And sometimes what a person says to you is wrong, even if it sounds right. Just because something sounds right doesn't mean that it accords with Scripture. And so we, we, we have to cultivate the humility to hear one another and the maturity to discern what is said. Okay, deep breath. Let's read verses 33b to 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay. The Old Testament prophets taught Israel to expect that with the coming of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the church such that women would prophesy. Let's read from Acts 2. This is, this is a quote from Joel 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And so the new covenant opened the gift of prophecy to everyone, including women. The Holy Spirit had been poured out upon this church in Corinth. And so we should expect to see women prophesying. And in fact, they were. And in fact, Paul commended the practice just three chapters ago. So why would Paul write these words? Well, let's first consider the context. These verses take up much of the vocabulary of the previous verses. Paul repeatedly prohibits speech that produces chaos or confusion. In verse 28, he instructs tongue talkers to keep silent if there's no one there to interpret. In verse 30, he instructs the prophets to keep silent when another prophet is speaking. And in verse 34, he instructs the women or the wives to keep silent. But when and under what conditions the only conceivable condition is given in verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn. Or in other words, if, if they have any questions. So we know from chapter 11 that Paul cannot be making a universal prohibition against females speaking in corporate worship. And presumably, the Corinthians would have known exactly what he was talking about. But we simply do not. So what problem could Paul have been addressing? I think there are two primary options. Option number one, Paul is prohibiting wives from publicly questioning their husband's prophecies. You may remember from chapter 11 that the Greek word translated as woman can refer either to woman or to wife. The, the meaning is determined by the context. But in these verses, you can make a good case for translating the word as wives because Paul goes on 
to address the husbands or reference the husbands. So within the context of everything Paul has been saying, one interpretation is that Paul is prohibiting wives from questioning their husbands in front of the congregation. Paul is saying to wives, when your husband shares a prophecy and the congregation comes together to weigh what he says, why don't you sit this one out? Don't shame him or emasculate him in front of the public assembly. Let let everyone else take care of that. You can imagine how, how awkward it would be if my wife were to verbalize her displeasure with my sermon, this sermon, for everyone to hear. Even modern Americans would consider that improper. And so she may disagree with what I say, but one way to honor me in this situation would be to wait till we get home to let me know about it. So it's significant that the Greek word translated as shameful in verse 35 may, may refer to embarrassment. The word shameful sounds really harsh to our Western ears, but we have to remember that Paul is speaking into an honor-shame culture. And so they would not have had, that word would not have had all the same connotations that we associate with it. Um, A better translation might just be improper. It's improper for wives to question their husbands in corporate worship. It's a breach of decorum. That's option number one. Option number two. Paul is prohibiting women from speaking while others are speaking. Paul is simply asking the women to show respect for the person speaking, which which might very well have been a woman. And yet Paul allows that perhaps the women have a good reason for speaking while another is speaking. It's not just that they're chatty. It might be that they actually have a question. They lack information. But then why would Paul single out women Well, first of all, there was a language barrier. Greek was the only common language spoken in Corinth. It would have been the language spoken by the prophets in corporate worship. But many Corinthian women, in particular, would have lacked a robust Greek vocabulary. Women may have received some informal education in the home, but the comparative lack of mental stimulation would have resulted in difficulties, especially in the corporate worship setting. I am not saying that's good. I'm just, I'm saying it would have been the reality at the time. Kenneth Bailey was an American missionary who spent 40 years teaching and pastoring in Egypt, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, and Cyprus. And he wrote the following in a commentary on this passage. He says, I have preached in village churches in Egypt where the women were seated on one side of the church and the men on the other. This was a common practice in ancient synagogues. There was a wooden partition about six feet high separating the two sections. I preached in simple colloquial Arabic, but the women were often illiterate and the preacher was expected to preach for at least an hour and we had problems. The women quickly passed the limit of their attention span. The children were seated with them, and chatting inevitably broke out among the women. The chatting would at times become so loud that no one could hear the preacher. These villages had no electricity and no sound amplification. One of the senior elders would stand up and in a desperate voice shout, let the women be silent in the church, and we would proceed. After about 10 minutes, the scene would repeat. 
So if option number two is right, Paul is saying, ladies, we're trying to maintain order, but things have gotten a little bit out of hand. I've asked the tongue talkers not to contribute to the chaos. I have asked the prophets not to contribute to the chaos. So I'm asking that you not contribute to the chaos. Refrain from speaking so that you can listen to the men and women who are trying to speak a prophetic word. And if you have questions, just wait till you get home. So according to this interpretation, the requirement that women should be in submission might, might simply mean that women should subject themselves to the teaching. Like tongue talkers with no interpreter, like prophets who just don't know when to stop, the women should refrain from disturbing the peace and clarity of corporate worship. So whether we go with option one or option two or something else entirely, Paul expects women to participate in corporate worship. He is addressing specific problems that were causing disorder in Corinth. And within that context, he instructs the women to exercise deference and self-control so that everyone can be built up and encouraged. Okay, let's move on to verses 36 to 40. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. To be clear, Paul is no longer talking to just women. He addresses the entire Corinthian church with a masculine plural you. Y'all, you guys. And he's summing up chapters 12 through 14. All things should be done decently, in order, as an act of love for God and others. This is a command of the Lord. In each of the three applications we've covered today, the Corinthians are called to look first to the interests of the body. They are called to promote upbuilding. They are not to platform or promote their own giftings. Just like Jesus, they are called to lay aside their self-interest and act in the interest of the church. And once again, Paul's emphasis on order rather than disorder was primarily a call for Christians to reflect the sort of God they were worshiping. A God who, through love, was bringing order to the chaos. Because man rejected God, this world has been plunged into chaos. But the man, Jesus Christ, has come, and he stood tall in the midst of that chaos. And he saw the world for more than just its chaos. He saw it for the wisdom and joy and beauty and divine riches. And yet, in his crucifixion, in his death, he was plunged into that chaos. In his resurrection, he began the work of restoring all things to their proper place. And so we worship a God and King who through love is actively bringing the chaos to order. Secondarily, 
Paul's emphasis on order rather than disorder was a call for Christians to distinguish their worship from pagan worship. Look again at verses 39 and 40. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The juxtaposition of these two verses is striking, even even for us today. Brothers and sisters, I want you to prophesy. I want you to speak in tongues. And I want you to maintain an orderly learning environment. We We don't often see churches living in this delicate balance. And so Paul's, Paul's vision for corporate worship is neither stiff formality nor undisciplined frenzy. So as, as we ponder his instructions, I, I do think we will be led to pray for gifting, especially the gift of prophecy. These things may not fit within your framework. You may not have a category for everything Paul is talking about here but you can pray for more of the Holy Spirit. And you can be open to his prompting when he answers that prayer. In John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. So Jesus is setting an example here for the prophets in Corinth. Jesus is willing to take a seat so that another might be given a chance to speak. And in this case, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And here's, here's the fun part. How does the Holy Spirit speak? Well, number one, he inspired scripture. But number two, he equips the saints to love one another into maturity. He speaks through us to one another, and he speaks through us to the world. The Bible governs everything we do, but underneath that authority, the Holy Spirit speaks through you and through me. And so if given the choice between having Jesus here in the flesh and having his spirit here in our midst, we should choose to have his spirit here in our midst. Why? What what does Jesus have in mind? Well, he has in mind you and me. Equipped, with a Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit, a gift or two given to us by the Holy Spirit, loving one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus has in mind. And that is even more powerful than having him right here, right now in the flesh. That's true of us. So let's pray for the higher gifts, especially prophecy. But rather than taking a quiz online to determine your spiritual gifting, just keep loving the people in your neighborhood parish. If you do that well, those people will be able to tell you precisely how the Holy Spirit has gifted you. It's not rocket science. It's not easy either. And so let's pray for help. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust you when we don't understand. Help us to obey you when we don't understand. To obey you even when we struggle to trust you. 
Jesus, thank you for taking our chaos upon yourself. We acknowledge you as Lord and King over everything. Holy Spirit, gift us, speak to us, use us, give us faith, make us into a loving and gifted community. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.